there's a Dharma cartoon of an old Zen master sitting in front of a room full of fresh recruits. <laughs> and he's saying, the path to enlightenment is long and arduous, which is why I asked you to bring a bag lunch and a change of clothes. <laughs> well, we know that the task of disentangling our mind from the causes of suffering is a long and arduous journey. And we need all the support, all of the tools, all of the understanding that we can get to both encourage us to keep going and to overcome whatever obstacles appear on the path. At this retreat, we offer just a lot of different practices. First, we have taking the refuges and precepts in the morning as a way of reawakening your aspiration or your commitment to being here. We have the sitting and walking practices to raise energy and to develop tranquility to keep those in balance. We have the metta or the karuna practice in the afternoon to open the heart to deal with the dukkha that's inevitable, the impatience that's pretty inevitable, and the chanting in the evening to raise the energy to extend your day. There's just a lot that supports our being here. It's not just one long sameness. There's a lot going on. and. We need all that and more, in part because the difficulties we meet are so creative. <laughs> they find every possible way to, to get in our way of being awake and being present and being inspired to continue. So tonight I want to talk about another tool, another support for our practice. And it's really a support for when we're facing really any of the hindrances. And lest you think from all the instructions we've given that thoughts are the problem with your practice, all of these practices involve thinking. So if you want to do any thinking, these are the practices to engage in. And they're called the four protective reflections because when we reflect on these four topics in the ways that I'll speak about them tonight, they not only arouse a certain energy of the mind, they arouse a certain quality of mind that opposes specific hindrances, but they guard our energy, our commitment, our aspiration, our samadhi that we have kind of gathered up to that point, our uh, inspiration, it's just uh, our faith. Because all of these qualities that are necessary to continue on the path are fragile. Until we, you know, really clearly solidify our understanding of the liberated mind. 
until we have this absolutely unshakable faith in the path to the liberated mind, our aspiration and faith and energy and commitment and is is vulnerable. So these practices support and protect those qualities of mind necessary to continue to walk the path. These four reflections Upandita, our teacher in Burma, suggested that you spend a minute or two on each one at the beginning of the day, just as a way of recollecting. However, uh, I have found it more useful to use the recollection as a specific antidote to an overwhelming hindrance attack. So you can experiment for yourself and see what works for you. Um, knowing that when we reflect on a topic like this, repeatedly drawing our mind or directing our mind to a reflection, it is a practice of collecting and concentrating the mind. It's not for the development of insight, but a collected mind supports the development of insight. So know that when you're doing these reflections, you are really practicing a samatha, or a concentration practice, that collects the mind. These four reflections are Buddha Nusati, the recollections of the virtues of the Buddha, Metta Bhavana, the development of loving-kindness, Asubha Bhavana, which is contemplation of the unbeautiful aspect of the sensual world, and Maranasati, the recollection of death. So I want to speak about each of these how to practice them, and when to use them, which may be as, an import, as important a consideration as knowing how to use them. I think I've mentioned before in an earlier talk about the ascetic Sumedha who made the vow to become a Buddha and then lived for hundreds of lifetimes developing and perfecting the paramis. And the paramis are these qualities of the awakened mind that we're all familiar with. Generosity, uh, sila or living in harmony, renunciation, energy, loving-kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, patience. And they're not qualities of heart or mind that are foreign to us. But we also know that they're not our default setting in every situation. So. The understanding in Burma, where I was practicing, is that for lay people, the practice of the paramis is really the practice of householders. And as we live our household life, family, work, social obligations, things like that, that we actively develop the paramis as a way of enhancing all the qualities of the awakened mind, and then in Burma, they suggest, or they recommend, two months a year intensive practice to kind of check out how you know, the paramis support the development of insight. And then do your ten months of parami practice and two months of insight practice. And over the course of a lifetime, significant uh, progress on the path uh, 
can be expected. Tonight I want to talk about one specific parami that the Buddha brought to perfection. And I spoke about it earlier at some retreat, and maybe this one. But that's <laughs> what happens when you give the same talk over and over again. But it's an important topic, it's an important quality of mind in practice. And it's called aditana, or resoluteness. And I think I spoke about it earlier as commitment, developing commitment, maintaining commitment, supporting commitment, reaffirming commitment to practice. But this resoluteness that I want to speak about tonight, this kind of steadfastness, has a different quality, or a slightly... I want to expand on this topic a little bit because so much of our practice feels intentional and effortful. And we've all had the experience of being exhausted and just unable to make the effort in practice. There is an initial stage or, you know, an initial part of practice, we do need a lot of clarity to our intention, and we do need to make the effort, although it is actually quite a minimal effort in each moment. But with some momentum in practice, as we all have, whether it's here on this retreat or some years of practice, some exposure to practice, there arises in the mind an understanding not only of our aspiration and the goal, but a kind of understanding that you can't go back. You, you know, after you know something, clearly, to some degree, that practice works, that letting go is the cause of happiness or the end of suffering. After you know that, even in little ways, you can't go back to the indulgence in pleasure as a vehicle or foundation for happiness. You just... So, you're kind of caught, you know, because you it, the path ahead is challenging enough, and you can't go back to the kind of the ignorant bliss, or the naivete, or the, you know, the, the, the just, the, the absolute darkness of delusion that we might, once might have enjoyed. <laughs> it's just, and so, as Trungpa Rinpoche, a, a Tibetan teacher of a couple of decades ago said, you know, about this Dharma practice, it really would be better if we had never started. <laughs> but since we have all started, it would be better if we all finish. <laughs> so this quality of resoluteness is actually just a recognition within yourself that you can't go back. 
You may not be totally fulfilled and happy and satisfied with the path ahead and your progress to date, but for sure you can't wish to go back to the confusion, delusion, and bewilderment. And, and so the mind is already set on its course, on its path, on its direction. And even though that path is obscured at times and challenged a lot, we still have to make the effort to continue. So I want to talk about this a little bit because I was speaking with someone earlier about their wish to just have this fierce, you know, determination that they're just not going <clears> to, <throat> you know, and I said, that's not realistic. That's just not realistic. You are going to meet challenges. There's going to be times of backsliding. There's going to be times of low, low interest, inspiration, and energy. How are you going to accommodate that if you think you've got to have this fierce, take no prisoners mentality? It would be much better to understand this resoluteness of mind, this steadfastness of mind, as being trusting your spiritual compass. And when you find yourself backsliding, or you find yourself stymied, or you find yourself stuck, or you find yourself overwhelmed, or you find yourself just feeling despairing and defeated, to just take a look at your spiritual compass and say, well, the direction from here is straight ahead. And no matter where you find yourself, you can recall the direction. You can recall your aspiration. You can recall the instruction, if you will, of don't struggle with this. Just acknowledge it. Just, just name it. Just, just see this, this is where you're at. This is it. What this helps do is to pull the plug on all of our, well, the incessant uh, self-judgment that is so damaging to our energy, our faith, our inspiration, our aspiration. When we judge ourselves, when we judge our practice, when we judge our efforts, when we, we judge the result of our efforts, it's really damaging. Not damaging in a way that can't be repaired, of course, we can just keep practicing, but it, it's a self-imposed obstacle. And the way to kind of reflect on it is just to remember that once you, you know, once you set the course for your mind's liberation with a, as minimal understanding as we have had at the beginning and whatever we have at this point, and faith and energy, that's enough. You just have to recall it again and say, this is what I'm here for. This is the direction I'm going. It really doesn't matter what you're experiencing. Not one bit. It, does, it just doesn't matter. 
whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether you understand it or not, whether it's oppressive or light or heavy or dark or light, it just, it just doesn't matter. All that, it ma all that matters is that you recognize that you have another step to take. Because in that recognition, you can step in the direction of your aspiration. That's it. You can't do any more than that, ever. Just take the next step. This kind of resoluteness, this kind of steadfastness, this kind of relocating the course can be contaminated by all of the hindrances, by doubt, by restlessness, by attachment, by aversion, by dullness, sleepiness. I don't know if Kamala mentioned in this talk or in this, in this retreat about Deepama, the woman who, the Indian teacher that many of us had, who, was, who just had an unbearable life of suffering. But when she finally got the instruction and determination to go to practice meditation, had to crawl up the steps of the meditation hall to get there. Crawl. None of us had to crawl in this door to get here. What kind of determination is that? Just knowing that it's absolutely essential to practice. She, shortly before she died, she was speaking with Joseph Goldstein, one of our friends and teachers. And she said to Joseph, she said, and Joseph has a, he has a long-term commitment to awakening, and it's, it's really genuine for most of you who know him. And she said to Joseph, now Joseph, don't be lazy. <laughs> You should sit for three days. And she didn't mean you should do a three-day retreat. She meant you should sit down and get up three days later. <laughs> Don't be lazy. Well, I, I don't know if that's in my spiritual path, but <laughs> I hope not soon. But nevertheless, what kind of mind could say, you know, okay, Mark, <laughs> Lorna, you know, Andrea, you know, don't be lazy. You should sit for an hour. Or you sit for two hours. Or you sit for a day. Or you sit for three days. It's a mind that knows that it's possible. The Buddha woke to the causes of suffering, saw through them, released them, and attained the end of suffering. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Okay. You believe it was possible for him. Do you believe it's possible for you? Now think about that. Not too long, but just think about that. Do you really think it's possible for you, given all of your, 
your personal story, whatever it includes. Do you think it's possible for you? In this lifetime? Well, even without that condition, do you think it's possible? Okay, if it is, what's to stop you? Only our own irresoluteness, our own laziness, our own... That's it. And so, if we really think it's possible, just set your mind in that direction. I mean, in a very simple way, all it takes is when you sit down for a 45-minute sitting, an hour-long sitting, just remind yourself, I want to be totally mindful, continuously mindful for the next 45 minutes. That's all you can do. You're reminding yourself, that's the direction I'm headed. That's where I want to be. That's the, And you don't have to strive. You don't have to do anything different than just do the best you can at your practice. But you reconnect. You resolutely set your aspiration on your cushion and... <laughs> and make the effort. So, we have a piece of property down here about a mile away. And there's a number of invasive species of plants on the island that are just tenacious uh, weeds of one sort or another, and they can grow anywhere. <laughs> we have this one rock. We have a lot of rocks, but we have this one rock, huge rock, and growing right out of the top of this rock, where there's absolutely no soil, <laughs> is this huge cactus. You have to wonder, <laughs> where is its roots? Where is its, where's it getting its nourishment? I mean, it's like, you know, no matter how dry and brittle and barren and unwelcoming that rock is, the cactus just loves it. <laughs> well, no matter how dry and brittle and barren and unwelcoming your mind is, you just plant the seed of awakening in there and hold it there. That's what the Bodhisattva did. That's what you believe you can do. <coughs> now, we just have to do it. This kind of uh, resoluteness initially feels like a lot of intention and energy. I was working with Upandita in Burma doing my practice. And at a certain point, you know, it was pretty clear that the energy gets uh, balanced and you don't have to make a lot of effortful energy. It's just pretty smooth. And if you apply some strong intention, it's just that's the predominant uh, experience in that moment and it overwhelms everything else. So you can't really apply very strong intention. So applying effort and applying intention doesn't work anymore. So Upandita had me start working with aditana, or resoluteness. And he said, it's a quality of mind that can be trained, and you can develop it, and it's not effortful. 
It's just setting your mind steadfastly in a certain direction and then letting your mind find its way there. And I thought, sounds like magic to me. So I started practicing and doing it, and it was not easy because how do you make something happen if you don't have any intention or effort? But nevertheless, you start doing it. And then one day he told me to set my mind to do one particular thing. And I laughed right out loud at him. I said, you got to be kidding. I don't even believe I can do that. You know, I just don't believe it's possible. And he said, ah, oh, just try it anyway. So I sat down and I, I made my resolution. I read my, made my aditana and I said, Dada, may I do, 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 do. And I no more than just closed my eyes and turned my mind, and my mind went right there. I couldn't believe it. It just shocked me. It just blew my mind that the clarity of intention and the purity of mind with the clear resoluteness can accomplish something that I didn't even believe was possible. Now, nobody can convince you of that, except you have to try it for yourself. You have to practice it for yourself. You practice resoluteness of mind. So you tell yourself, mind, be totally mindful for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> Probably you don't believe it's possible. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. You tell your mind to do that anyway, and just see what happens. But again, remember I said, don't judge your practice. If it seems like you failed, you didn't fail. Just trying is a success. There's no such thing as a failure. Whether you attain what you set your mind to do or not is not the question. The question is, will you try it? Because if you do, you will see the result. You'll see a result, and in time you'll learn to how, to, how to really work with this resoluteness of mind that is not, you know, uh, ambition, it's not ego aggrandizement, it's not striving, it's just training the mind to be resolute. Okay, one quality of the Buddha to reflect on and to really use as a practice when you're feeling uninspired, unable, unwilling, lazy, uh, things aren't going the way you want, nevertheless, it can happen. The second protective reflection is the development of metta. And I'm not going to say too much about metta. You've been practicing metta with Kamala in the afternoons for a couple of weeks or a week or so. Just to acknowledge that metta is particularly helpful when you're dealing with a lot of aversion, or you're seeing a lot of dukkha. Because at some points in our practice, the insight into dukkha is up, it's opening, and that's, that's the quality of your experience. It's very dukkha, it's very unsatisfying. The, the momentary experience is unsatisfying, your, your sense of practice is unsatisfying, your sense of yourself is unsatisfying, and certainly all your fellow yogis, teachers, meals, staff, and the weather is unsatisfying. Well, that's, 
that's what happens when dukkha is really up. So it gets a little oppressive. Well, that's dukkha too. But that's when metta is particularly helpful. There's a saying that, or a little, I guess it's just, probably it's something the Buddha said, I'm not really sure, that I heard early on in my Dharma practice, and it always stuck with me as, and I didn't really have a, any reason to believe it. I guess I just wanted to. And it's this phrase, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. The Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. Meaning, the way we can protect the Dharma is to do our practice, to, to be sincere and effortful and you know, as continuous as possible. And that's the way we protect the Dharma. We hear the Dharma, we honor it, we value it, we act on it. And in turn, you will be protected by the truth. The truth won't harm you. One metta story. I was in Burma in 1988. I'd been there a few years, since 85, practicing as a monk in the monastery. And in 88, you know, there was a, a big political uprising in Burma. The dictator of 30, 30 years stepped down. Everybody thought they were going to get democratic elections. The country went wild for about six weeks. Everybody was protesting in the streets for democratic election. And it seemed like it was actually going to happen. The country was just so ecstatic, so excited, and so hopeful that there was going to be a change and they were just going to come out from under the thumb of this oppressive uh, dictator. Then, in the course of some political uh, action, some of the demonstrators uh, humiliated the police. Two days later, the military took over again. And they, you know, disappeared. Anybody who had any leadership role in all of the, all of the pro-democracy movement. So immediately overnight, the country went into this severe depression and anger and hostility. It was just unbelievable with how dramatic the shift was from super high excitement to super low fear and resentment and anger. And at that time, Aung San Suu Kyi, the since then Nobel Peace Prize winner in Burma, she was at that time just ascending to in her role as being a spokesperson for the democratic interests of Burma. And the military that took over was really threatened at that time, still are, by the power that she had to command respect and authority and the large following. So they wanted to get her out of the country because their new um, imposed military regime was pretty fragile. So they, her husband was, was English. So they passed this edict, or they promulgated this edict that said all foreigners have to leave the country at the end of October. And this was in August. And uh, they figured that if they could get him out of the country, she'd go with him and they'd be rid of her. Well, that didn't happen. But nevertheless, I was in the country at the time, a foreigner, and I got the notice from the embassy that you got to leave the country by the end of October. And I said, I, I don't want to leave the country. I'm, I'm a monk. I'm practicing. I'm not... I'm not agitating anybody. I'm not raising. I, I don't. I don't. I mean, I care, but 
I'm not doing anything. What? So they said, no, everybody's, all foreigners got to leave the country. So I was really not interested in, in leaving. But when that, when the military had taken over, it was so much dukkha in the country. I, was, I started doing metta practice. And I was doing metta practice for, you know, the usual benefactor, self and benefactor. And after a couple of weeks, Upandita asked me, he said, are you, uh, are you practicing metta for the generals that took over? And I said, no, I'm not practicing metta for the generals. <laughs> well, you know, no, they're not, they're... And he said, you know, they want to be happy too. But because of their heavy delusion, they actually think that what they're doing is the way to be happy. They really do. And he said, they need your metta. So I started practicing metta. And it wasn't easy because, you know, when you call up brutal military killers, you don't, it's not easy to have a lot of love and may you be happy and for them. But, you know, after a couple of weeks, it got to where I could really see them as human beings that were suffering and I wished them to be happy. And if they were genuinely happy, maybe they wouldn't have to do what they were doing, thinking it would make them happy. So I got to where I could send metta to the generals uh, along with everybody else. Well, when they passed this, edict saying all foreigners had to leave Burma and I didn't want to, I said, well, what do I got to do? So I knew that this General Ufo Mint had been appointed to the, uh, be the leader of the Home and Religious Affairs Department. And that is where the application for visas to stay in the monastery went. So I wrote him a letter. I said, uh, I'm a monk. I've been in Burma for three or four years. I've been practicing here at this monastery, and I'm doing this and doing that. I have, you know, I'm not a political this. I'm not, I'm not have any social interests in the country. Da, 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 da. And I'd like to have permission to stay, to continue my practice. And then I had the, the English letter that I wrote translated into Burmese, and I had one of the Burmese monks write it in Burmese script. So then I thought I would just go downtown and give it to him. But... <laughs> <laughs> the country was in martial law, and you know you couldn't go two blocks without running into a tank, a barricade of tanks and barbed wire, so I didn't go anywhere. So I was kind of stuck in my monastery wondering how I was going to get this letter to him. So the word got around, and one night I was sitting in my room in my cottage, and this woman came to the door who was the dietitian at the dining room where I used to eat. And she had some affection for me. She just used to look after me pretty carefully. And so she said, uh, oh, I heard you have a letter for General Ufom Yan. And I said, yes, I do. I'd like to, I've written him a letter asking him if I could get permission to stay in the country after, you know, the deadline. And she said, well, I, I know uh, General Ufom Yan. My, my niece, my niece married his son. And I'm going to go have dinner with him tonight. So if you give me the letter, I'll take the letter to Ufom Yan. I said, great. Here's the letter. I gave her the letter. She came back the next day and said, I had dinner with uh, General Ufo Mint last night, and I, I gave him your letter, and I told him who you were, and I vouched for your, you know, the, your sincerity and whatnot. He said you could stay. <laughs> he said you could stay. Just apply for your visa in the usual way, and he'll see that it gets approved. October came, uh, to the, uh, at the end of October, all the other foreigners in the country had to leave. I could stay. That metta 
really works. <laughs> and metta really works. It really protects your practice. Now, who can say that that's what really happened? I can. <laughs> that's the way it was for me. I wanted my, the, my opportunity to practice was protected, was, was kept safe, was made possible. So this method is really good, um, really good practice. So we have re- recollecting the virtues of the Buddha, particularly this steadfast resoluteness. We have metta for protecting your practice, particularly from aversion and dukkha. The third practice is called asubha bhavana. It's developing the perception of the unbeautiful aspect of the body. And this is, um, it's a little difficult to mm, talk about this and have it understood correctly. And it often pushes somebody's buttons. So I want to apologize before I even begin that if I say anything that offends you or uh, embarrasses you or uh, assaults your sensibilities in some way, I'm not trying to do that intentionally. I'm just trying to share the teachings of the Buddha and I I ask for your forgiveness. And when I earlier mentioned to teachers, the first some teachers I was teaching with, the first time I wanted to give this talk, they cautioned me against speaking about Asuba. But you know what they say, fools rush in, (laughs) (laughs) angels fear to tread. So here we go. (laughs) Now, one of the greatest obstacles to, um, you know, really staying in your practice and staying collected and continuous is lust. It can come to anybody at any time, male or female, young or old. And it's a seductive uh, entanglement of the mind. And it often is focused on other beings. So this practice is a kind of reflection that dampens your enthusiasm for indulging in others' bodies. How's that? Now, it's not about hating the body. It's not about hating anybody or damaging the body or hurting yourself or hurting anybody else. It's about, instead of getting passionate about others, it's to help arouse dispassion towards others. Not to hate them, but to arouse dispassion. Now, this is a wholesome quality in spiritual practice because it protects your mind from getting so, so enthusiastically entangled in lust. I was thinking earlier today about this topic, and I was thinking, I remember the Dalai Lama saying something about, you know, bodhicitta, the, the aspiration to help uh, other beings at all times, and how he didn't really have that yet, but he was aspiring 
to have the aspiration to be able to help all beings. Well, I kind of think that's where I am and a lot of us are, is that we hope to one day to have the aspiration to not have so much <laughs> entanglement in desire and lust. But not just yet. But nevertheless, in practice, when we get entangled in fantasizing and futurizing and, and really just lost in la-la land with attraction and attachment to the body, this practice is a way of dampening the enthusiasm. Now, to get an idea of what a suba practice means, we can look at the word suba. Suba means beautiful, lustrous, radiant, uh, pleasant, um, the whole package, if you will. And in our conditioning, that means young, smooth, firm, energetic, and pleasant. Okay? Asuba is not that. Okay. So Asuba is the non-radiant, the non-lustrous, the non-firm, the non-beautiful, you know, the non-colorful, and the, the appearance when gravity wins. That's Asuba. Okay. So now, generally the, a traditional Asuba practice is to reflect on the 32 parts of the body as just 32 parts of the body. Normally when we look at a body, first we get a, we get a glimpse out of the corner of our eye and it looks attractive. So then we take a second look and we see, oh, it's not just the form that's, that's attractive, it's the color, the shape, not only the hair, but the eyes and other parts of the body. And it's like, you know, we can go into infinite details about all the beautifulness there. So this reflection is to take that part of the body that you're most fascinated with and just kind of put it over here on a platter, if you will. <laughs> I mean, let's assume it's the hair. You know, you just take the hair and you just put it over here, devoid of all the rest of the body, and you take a look. You know? And you kind of contemplate it. Like, uh, is, that, is, that, is that so beautiful? Well, maybe it's not the hair, maybe it's something else. So you just put that over there. You take a look whatever it is that you're attracted to. And it kind of doesn't take long before you're not so interested. <laughs> you know, just like, uh, yeah, not so interested. So, when I was about to be ordained, one of the first things that happens when you're going to get ordained is they shave your hair, shave your head. So I was going to get my head shaved, and my teacher, Mandita, said, when you're getting your head shaved, reflect on hair of the head is one of the 32 parts of the body. So I said, okay, right. Went across the street, the Burmese monk lathered up my head, took the straight razor and goes swoosh, and about half the hair on my head just kind of landed in this soggy mass, soggy soapy mass at the bottom of my feet. And then I remembered, oh, hair of the head, one of the third two parts of the body. And in an instant, just in a split second, I mean, it's amazing how fast the mind is. One second, all of the hassles I'd had with my hair for the past 35 years came into view. Too long, too short, too greasy, wrong color, you know, too straight. Okay, expensive shampoo, expensive haircuts, and, you know, thousands of bad hair days. It all just came, and I said, wow, hair of the head is really a hassle. It's just, just the other day, just yesterday, I think it was, Kamala said, geez, I had to shampoo my hair again. Now that it's longer, it's really a hassle. 
Just think, how many hours in your life, maybe we should go weeks, how many weeks in your life have you stood in front of the mirror fixing this? <laughs> All that time, you could have been practicing. <laughs> you, want to want, you want to know why you're not enlightened yet? It's this. <laughs> so, so it's like that. So, <laughs> and you can take any other part of the body. <clears throat> That's one way. There's another way of practicing a suba, and that I had the opportunity when I was in Thailand to do this. I didn't take the opportunity, but I had the opportunity. Is and this is a, a practice that the Thai monks uh, have the opportunity to do, and that is to go into a cave to practice with a fresh corpse. And you stay in the cave and practice till the corpse is gone. <laughs> You know, that, that, that's, that's hardcore. <laughs> but, you know, it'd be hard to have much lust. Because that's the way of the body, of all bodies. And it really cuts through, uh, you know, kind of fantasy indulgence. Another reflection is to just... And actually there's quite a lot of this in this country already, although it doesn't seem to work in the way it's supposed to, is to reflect on all the ailments that can befall the body. All the, 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 the fragility of the body and how easily it can be, you know, get sick and, and just feel miserable as a way of just not getting so kind of entangled in either the appearance or the functioning of the body because it is so fragile. Not only your own, but anyone else's. And to reflect on that as a way of kind of just kind of stepping back from fascinated, fantasizing and indulgence of you know, physical pleasure through the body. Now we have to be careful in doing any of these super practices that we don't arouse uh, morbidity or fear or disgust or just this kind of fascination with the macabre because that's not the purpose. The purpose of the practice is only to dampen lust by arousing and seeing clearly the unbeautiful aspect of the body. So that it, it, it arouses some dispassion, some coolness, so you don't get so entangled. Because the conditioning in our culture is just the opposite, as you know. Our advertising is filled with the message of get entangled. And, you know, if we're really aware of what's going on in our minds in response to all that conditioning, you can see the need for practicing a super practice. At the time of the Buddha, there was this famously beautiful courtesan, graceful woman called Ambapali. And courtesans at the time of the Buddha had quite a high status in society. They were like geishas, maybe the high-class geishas. And because of her, the whole city where she lived became very wealthy. And she became a follower of the Buddha, practicing the Buddha's teachings. And when 
she would go to or was going to come to a Dharma talk where the Buddha was giving a talk in the evening or at dusk usually, uh, the Buddha would warn the monks. He said, now Ambapali is coming to the talk tonight, so keep your eyes in your head because you can really lose your head over this woman. She's really gorgeous. And so he would have to caution the monks to kind of guard their senses. She was so devoted to the Buddha that she used to offer meals and she even had uh, a large garden prepared or built and offered it to the Sangha for their use as a place to uh, stay and practice. It said that once when she was older, when she was practicing, she noticed the signs of aging in her body, on her body, and it was the perception of that aging that caused her to let go and attain full enlightenment. Now I've happened to notice some signs of aging (laughs) in my body. It didn't work yet, but I'm still hopeful. You know, that someday I'm going to look in the mirror and say, wow, look at those lines. It's called Ambapali practice. So, <laughs> nevertheless, we should consider, you know, if that's your particular hindrance that you're really getting lost in and entangled in, to consider some asupa practice as a way of dampening the passion for indulgence in the body. So we have reflecting on the qualities of Buddha, metta bhavana, or loving kindness, a super practice for dampening uh, lust. And the last practice I want to talk about, or the last reflection I want to talk about tonight, is called Maranasati, mindfulness of death. And this practice is specifically for when we're either feeling lazy, bored, uninspired, or that practice can wait. It's kind of interesting that when the Bodhisattva, the prince, left the palace and he saw the four heavenly messengers, an aging person, a sick person, a corpse, and a mendicant, that one of them was a corpse. And it's said that when the Bodhisattva saw a corpse and he was told what it was and he got it, what it meant, to die, and that all beings die, it so shook his understanding of what he was doing there as a human being that it propelled him into the spiritual life. It just threw him into this urgent need to really understand suffering, the end of suffering, and how, how to do that. And this reflection, the, the fourth reflection, does that for us. In some way, we're so fascinated with the entanglements of our life that we forget that we're going to die. And this reflection is a way of bringing all of our 
hopes and plans and you know aspirate all that stuff it's bringing it right up close and saying there's an end to all this all your dreams are going to come to an end all your hopes are going to come to an end all your plans are going to end in death now every religion and every culture has some mythological explanation and some ritualistic way of handling death and who's to say really what happens at death is there anyone in the room now who understands really what happens at death who really knows for sure definitely all we know is that somehow this life comes to an end we know we're going to die but we don't live with that understanding enough. It's there in the background and somehow we have this kind of belief that if we just keep moving fast enough maybe we'll get everything done before it's too late. Well this reflection is to bring the fact of our death right up close so that we can be motivated and feel the urgency to do in life what is really worth doing before we die. And so the traditionally the reflection involves just reflecting and just holding these thoughts in the mind and just to let them kind of sink in. It's not just doing a lot of churning thinking, but to reflect that life is uncertain, death is certain. We don't know what life's going to bring from one day to the next, except we do know that we're going to die. The second reflection is that the length of our life is completely unknown. We just don't know. We may think we're going to live to be 60, 70, 80, or hope that we do. But there isn't one of us in this room that knows that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. We really don't know. And just to hold that thought in the mind. And the third thought is, since everyone must die, and there is no possibility of avoiding it, I too must die. And to hold that thought in the mind. Life is uncertain. Death is really certain. We know that. And to bring that into our life every day, really close, so that we're not distracted and dissipated in frivolous and insignificant, you know, entanglement. It's like death is certain. It, it's right there. And we don't know how long we've got to live. And since everyone must die, no way to avoid it, I too must die. 
when we reflect like that, our time on earth really looks precious. And what we do with that time is really important. Reflecting like this helps to check a tendency towards slackness or boredom, laziness. It also helps us to let go of petty, you know, irritations and insignificant diversions, distractions, attachments. It's just, we, we get caught in them because we don't remember. And somehow we just assume that we've got all the time in the world to play out with whatever toys we choose, all of our fantasies. And we don't. Many of you who've been here over the years, have been coming here for years, know that for many years we had a staff person cooking for us. A young man who came to the first retreat and then cooked every retreat after that, healthy. Jogging every day, eating best foods, vitamins, just really healthy. 50 years old, just like that. In an instant, died. Not on his agenda. Nobody expected it. No warning. It just, that was it. Fortunately, he just practiced here for a month, but nevertheless, when the time is up, the time is up. Reflecting on death like that is a powerful perception, recognition. This is the way it is. Mindfulness, acknowledging the fact of death. Again, Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda about death. He said, death is your eternal companion. It is the hunter and it is always to your left at an arm's length. It's always been watching and it always will until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know that death is stalking you? The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women that live their lives as if death will never tap them. 
So these four reflections can really protect our practice, can be used to confront the hindrances, the difficulties in practice, whether it's desire or laziness or boredom or aversion or doubt, and to use them in that way, to use them skillfully to address some of the challenges that we meet each day. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. <clears throat> 